Hello, everybody. I'm J.D. Lopez, the host of Left Hand Right Brain. It's a free-flowing, wide-ranging conversation that I have with artists doing interesting and creative things here in Denver and beyond. We talk about their personal stories, break down their creative process, and what motivates them. Spoiler alert, it's mostly spite. We talk about all these things and more while kicking back, cracking wise, and always having a good time. You can find old episodes and everything you need to know at lefthandrightbrainpod.com. The John of All Trades podcast is a part of the Denver Podcast Network. In the shadow of the mountains, we, we speak. speak. Start the show! You have all made it to the dance. You have all made it, made it, made it. to you from the X-Access. It's John of All Trades with your host, John X. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the John of All Trades podcast, episode 197. I'm your host, John X. Thank you for joining us. Glad to have you back once again. Denver Film Festival 41 coverage rolls on and on this week's show i say this week like i haven't already done a show this week also this week is episode 197 i've got isa matze and daniel goldhaber they are the writer and the director respectively of a movie called cam now cam has been getting a lot of buzz they debuted it at fantasia which is in montreal they've been doing festivals now for the last three or four months and this is all in advance of cam dropping on netflix November 16th. So they are getting beamed into 130 million homes on November 16th. If you Google the movie Cam, you will find a number of reviews, almost all of them positive, and a lot of buzz that this is coming to Netflix. This movie in some way falls under the umbrella of Blumhouse, which you may remember did Get Out last year. And based on what Daniel and Issa tell me, Blumhouse is just a delight to work with, and they give their creators a lot of freedom, which is really important for a movie like this, because as they tell me, it wasn't hard to sell a movie based on this subject matter. But what was hard is getting the right film made about the subject matter. Now, the movie's called Cam. It's about cam girls. If you've spent any time searching for adult material online, you've probably seen ads for cam girls. I myself personally, I mean, no one ever believes you when you tell them this. This is like me saying I read Playboy for the articles, which I also did. But I've never actually spent any time on a cam site. So I didn't know a ton about this. But the ubiquity of the advertising is kind of hard to miss. So to that end, when this was pitched to me, Neil goes, hey, there's this movie cam here. Would you want to talk to the filmmakers behind that? Or is that too porny for your audience? And I go, dude, nothing is off limits on this podcast. I want to explore every single type of work that's out there. I want to talk to interesting people who have pointed opinions about issues of culture and society and work and how do we do the things that we do. Because in our modern culture, and given the backdrop of the Puritan history of this country, I think sex work is really misunderstood and in a lot of cases maligned. There are people out there who just would like to wave their hand and say, nope, we don't want this to exist anymore, so we're going to criminalize it, or we're not going to support it, or let's push it into the margins. And in my estimation, that is no way to run a railroad. That is no way to have a society. Look, if you don't like sex work and you don't think that it has a place in society, that's fine. But here's the thing. This work, in my estimation, is always going to exist. And there are real people who work in this industry. So you know what? Let's find out about them. Let's find out their motivations. Let's find out how we can best take care of them. What do they need? And in talking to Issa, who is a former cam girl herself, she said, step one, 
Just listen to sex workers. Don't start talking. Just listen. And that's one of the goals of this podcast. Now, we spend a lot of time talking about issues of policy and issues of culture and issues of society. Daniel tells me about something that I knew nothing about. And it's this weird phenomenon called swatting, where evidently, if someone knows your address, they can say there's a bomb threat over there or there's a hostage situation. And they send a SWAT team to your house. And it really disturbs and in a lot of ways ruins your life. Because, you know, there's destruction of property, you scare your pets, you put your family through a lot of trauma, and there are sex workers who have gone through this. So we talk a lot about these issues of importance, but that's not all this podcast is. We also talk about the movie, which on its own terms is pretty great. It's really propulsive. It's a horror movie. And the distinction here is that a horror movie about those who work in the sex industry does not necessarily have to be sex negative, right? Think about that. That's kind of turning the genre on its ear. And the movie has a whole visual language. It's created this really immersive experience. And once you start watching it, I got about 60% of the way into it. And I go, I have no idea where this is going. I have to see how this resolves. Because as a genre movie, it stands on its own terms. And it's really fun to watch. But attached with that, it triggered all these questions that I have surrounding this line of work. And so there's a lot here, and I'm really thrilled to bring this episode to you. That's what I love about the Denver Film Festival. I get exposure to all these different types of movies that focus on different parts of society that I wouldn't necessarily have exposure to. So I'm intensely grateful to both Daniel and Issa for taking the time and being on my show talking about Cam. Now, this is episode three of what I think is going to be six as part of my Denver Film Festival coverage. You can find all of those episodes under the tab on the menu bar on the John of All Trades website. That's J-O-N-OfAllTrades.us. And if you go to podcast, under episodes, there will be a tab that says Denver Film Festival 2018. So check out all the episodes that I'm doing there. Also stay up with me on social media. It's J-O-A-T-Pod across platforms. That's Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Pinterest, and Instagram. Let's get to episode 197 of the John of All Trades podcast. I've got Issa Mutze and Daniel Goldhaber. They are the writer and the director, respectively, of the movie Cam. And their episode starts right now. It's great. We love Colorado. Yeah, we love it. It's fun. Yeah. We've had friends and family out to the screenings, which has been kind of a trip. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, we both still technically live here, even though we travel way too much. Right. So I'm still in my parents' basement, you know, uh, <laughs> living like a really, really glamorous lifestyle. Nice. What part of town are you in? Uh, I'm in uh, South Boulder, right off Table okay. and Broadway, which is the same house I have lived my whole life. Um, nice. So yeah, it's 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 really we really were hoping to play Denver and and it, it's really it's really great being able to just be a part of the film community. This is the this is where I got my start in filmmaking, right? Personally, so did you guys debut this at Fantasia? Mm-hmm. We did, yeah, in okay. Montreal, Montreal, yeah. And you won there, right? We won best first feature and best screenplay. Yeah, okay. best first feature, mm-hmm. first feature. Yeah. yeah, okay. So is that the case for both of you, first feature? First it is, feature. yeah. And it's the case for our creative producer, our director of photography, our editor, our sound designer, our composer. Wow. Um, it, it was a lot of people really wanting to put everything they had into a movie they thought would be decent. So. <laughs> well, it's remarkably polished, I would say, for a first feature. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. So this is Daniel Goldhaber and Issa Mutze, and you are respectively the director and the writer of mm-hmm. CAM. 
And so I was just remarking about how it looks remarkably po- remarkably polished, and it has uh, a really cool visual aesthetic too, especially. And one of the things I saw as I was prepping for this is you all were quoted in an interview saying that when there's features focused on the internet, a lot of attention doesn't always go into design. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think, I mean, our main, you know, camming is so much someone in a room talking to a monitor right? alone. Like I spent when I was camming most of my nights alone in my room screaming at a laptop. And so, (laughs) you know, to try to translate that into something that would feel exciting and stimulating for an audience was imperative because camming is really fun. Being online is really fun. But anytime we watched a movie, we would see, you know, people take out their phone or open a computer. And we're like, oh, God, we have to watch you send an email. (laughs) So boring. Um, and I give Danny a lot of credit with coming up with kind of this visual language to tell the story in a way that would engage the audience and also bring them inside a cam girl's experience. Well, like custom emojis too, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it was, it was really top to bottom. You know, we knew really early on that we needed to build a live website that we could script. So Issa wrote about a hundred pages of cam shows. And then we went to this company in New York called Chips that designed, and the design of the site itself, because it looks like it's kind of from the early days of the internet. <laughs> which is how a lot of campsites look you know that took a long time to kind of get it looking appropriately shitty and then (laughs) and then we it's hard making something look bad (laughs) you know and then and then we we took that and we had to be able to essentially you know you you watch a cam show there's a feed we had to basically have a feed that we could program and totally manipulate the whole site the moving rank and kind of script all of that and then our creative producer Isabel Link-Levy when we actually shot she was the only person who knew camming and the movie well enough that she was the one literally really triggering the tips and and kind of acting against Maddie in, in all of the big camming oh, wow. sequences. Um, because for Maddie, we wanted it, you know, it's not about just getting the eyelines right. She's looking at the feed and then she's looking at herself and then she's looking at the rank back to the feed. And you need all those cut points. But you also, you know, we wanted to get the rhythm. And Issa laid in jokes in these scripts. So, like, Maddie was <laughs> seeing some of these things for the first time and actually reacting to it live. Wow. And, and We and, made emojis. We did make emojis. <laughs> we made some GIFs. Uh, we oh. licensed a lot of crazy animations. So and- you're on the side. Soft G end of that argument. I'm on the soft G side <laughs> okay. of the argument, yes. Because GIF? You said GIF? Uh, no, she said GIF. 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 It's GIF. I say GIF. It's GIF. I, I, I say GIF. It's GIF. I will fight anyone. I mean, we can, we can throw down right now. <laughs> Tweet at me. Um, but... But no, I mean, and, and Elena, Elena Gold. So there's, there's basically like two different types of good gifts. No, I don't even know what I'm saying. There's two <laughs> different types of, um, moving animations in the movie. Um, and, and one is a type that was designed by Elena, who also did our um, title, and she's an extraordinary visual artist. And, and she kind of made the ones that were a little bit more narrative or, or, you know, more directly tied to, to the cam milieu. Sure. Um, and then the other set we got from, uh, it was actually something I, I, uh, Teddy Blanks, who designed the website, had heard on a Reply All podcast about this insane image library called Animation Factory that was back in the early days of the internet. There was this crazy billionaire who wanted to create a, a, a GIF of everything uh, <laughs> so that you would be able to search his image library for literally anything you could think of and there would be a dumb animated GIF. And so he poured like so much money. They had like, and there's a Reply All episode about this. They had like 200 artists working like 18 hour days. And Jeez. then the bottom fell out of, you know, the web bubble burst in the early 2000s. 
Jones, the company went bankrupt, and the library was bought by some couple in like New Hampshire who just like Why? have it. Actually. In no Hawaii, idea. but but we got them. Anyway, to... we got all those crazy animations. Um, oh, yeah, sorry. we got we got all those all those you know from there, and it's a, I just highly recommend if you want like to really go into like a weirdo rabbit hole. Animation Factory is we got them to license license their content to wow. us and and use yeah. that to kind of uh, flesh out the rest of the the site. Well, the thing that's wild to me listening to this is in terms of making this film, it's not like Kevin Smith making Clerks, right? Where it's basically a couple of cameras, two guys talking largely in, in a convenience store off hours. Mm. That's an entirely different kind of technical challenge where you basically have to build a website that is sort of pseudo-interactive, right? Because you're scripting all these mm-hmm. points. So not only are you making a movie and making your first feature, but you're building an entire website in the background. Too. And then we're shooting a lot of the scenes <laughs> twice because we had to shoot Maddie as Lola to then play back live. We shot a lot of those screens live. And so then we had to shoot it again with Maddie as Alice talking to herself as Lola that we had shot before. Oh, geez, that's right. And yeah, I and mean, it, we, we feel like it's often really hard to just comp screens in. And you can always tell when someone's talking to a green screen. And so we needed, we wanted that to feel live because yeah. it was so much of our movie. And and the the, the worst part is that <laughs> all of that was the easy stuff. <laughs> really? Uh, yeah. That, that, was, that was pretty straightforward. But the problem is then we took all of that material into the editing room and a normal indie feature on the high end will take four months to edit this Uh took uh, a year like a full a full year end to end locked in a teeny dark room and basically it's because you know the the visual language of the movie is really experimental because you know she's just talking to a screen but that needs to feel hyper stimulating and so you know we had to come up with this whole way of kind of these really really quick cuts into these into these screens but but you you run into all these problems around you know <laughs> how long do you hold it for you know and and then how you can express what, what the site or what the men on the site are thinking or feeling just based on kind of like the slight variation of a characteristic and a tip noise and there's there's just there's no precedent for doing a movie like that and for building a character like that so it just took a tremendous amount of trial and and experimentation and i dan garber our editor is 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 a mad genius and well it's a, it's a very frenetic edit too yeah which i mean the the, the film is very propulsive and we got about 60 percent of the way into it i was watching it at home the other day and i'm like i have no idea where this is going <laughs> like and in a good way too mm-hmm. you know like i was disoriented i'm like i don't know how she's gonna solve this and it's a unique acting challenge particularly for um Madeline. 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 Yeah. Uh, because, you know, she has to play Lola, she has to play the other Lola, and she has to play Alice. And so you're watching her sort of balance this, and each of the three is distinct. And yet, yet there's a, a common thread binding them. Um, what an unusual acting challenge you presented to her. What, what was her reaction like when she saw this script for the first time? Um, we, so we both actually met with Maddie before we cast her. And, you know, first uh, Danny met with her to kind of sell her on, like, the vision of the film. She got right. the script. She loved the script. And then I met with her. And what was so cool about her is that, you know, she was absolutely excited to... Um, you know, play this character and, you know, she totally understood and got the politics behind the film. But more than that, she was like, damn, like I get to play four, uh, four different people, essentially. What a challenge yeah. and what an acting challenge, you know? And, um, I, I'm including Eve bought there too in the end. Um, but, uh, you know, and she really just took it by storm. Like she had, she, 
found cam girls that she liked on her own that she watched for reference. I remember she had this binder where she had marked up, you know, all the places in the script where she's Alice, where she's Alice as Lola, where she's Lola as Lola. And also, you know, where she's Alice as Lola offline when she meets Barney, because that's almost a different performance as well. That is. Because she's Alice performing Lola, but no longer on a webcam. And so, and to see kind of the nuance and the subtlety that she put into all of those different roles was absolutely mind-blowing. Like, she nailed it. It shines through. Yeah. Uh, I, and, I mean, the the film sort of hangs on her. Mm. I mean, with without uh, a nuanced performance like that, you know, you, you don't get what, what you're looking for here. Because on the page, I could picture seeing this and being like, this is amazing. It's going to be a tough acting challenge for someone to pull off. And and with with uh, with Madeline, you know, I think that what we we knew we needed and what we were really looking for is an actor who had a tremendous technical ability to kind of disappear into their roles, but also a total naturalism, you right. know, because because you know she, she needs to be able to get to those places, like in that opening that opening pull out shot of the webcam where it just feels like it's somebody hanging out on a camera, even though they're playing a version of themselves. And and I think that what's so remarkable about Maddie is that you know we have people come up to us and be like, I didn't realize this was the person. Person in The Handmaid's Tale and the person in Orange is the New Black, like right. her three big roles, they're so she just vanishes into them. And I think that it's it's really rare to find somebody with 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 that level of kind of ability. And 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 I'm so so grateful that we were able to collaborate with her on this because you know she wasn't just an amazing you know it's not just an amazing performance, but she was really a, an author of the film yeah. um, along with us in terms of uh, uh, she really owned the character and, and brought herself into it. In a Really special way. Yeah, no joke. And one of the things that I want to bridge back to that you said, Isa, was she got the politics of the film. Mm-hmm. And one of the reviews I read of this film said that it takes kind of uh, an amoral tone where the, the thing that I like about the script is it doesn't cast judgment on what she does. Like this is uh, a job, a profession that exists. This is a whole world that exists. How do people exist within it without sort of being from the outside and going, well, we know that it's wrong, right? We know that this isn't, uh, you know, this isn't valuable work, quote unquote, right? Mm-hmm. It never makes that. You know, I think about even something as simple like Independence Day, right? <laughs> Where she's a stripper, but, you know, she's got a kid. She's got this heart of gold. It's like, no, it's her life is her life. How does she navigate it? And so can you talk a little bit more about sort of the politics of the film and how you envisioned it? Totally. So as a former sex worker, I was really, when I was a sex worker, I was so frustrated with that because you, exactly, you see these tropes that we fall back on the stripper with a heart of gold, the single mom. Um, and also sex work is always has to fall into one of two categories in the media. It's either ultra glamorous yachts, exotification. Oh, you take off your shirt and you're a millionaire or it's, you know, this sleazy victimy exploited industry, you know, and, and people, what we, uh, how we portray things in, in the media is really important. Like it Agreed. affects how people view things. And so people assumed when I was a sex worker, they would say things like, Oh, but you went to college or do you need <laughs> money that badly? Or like, do you need me to lend you rent money? Are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm having fun. This is like my job. I love it. And so it was really important to show that side of sex work where for a lot of people who, who choose to engage in it, it's just a job and it's not good or bad. And sometimes it's empowering and sometimes it's boring. And sometimes we hate it just like any waitress or computer tech or accountant accountant or anyone. Exactly. Exactly. It's just another job that people do. Well, I mean that to me is you're almost describing like a middle class of sex worker. (laughs) 
<laughs> right? Yeah. Because, I mean, you talked about sort of the tops of the tops, right? And, you know, people on yachts and, you know, getting paid whatever. You know, you think of maybe, I don't know, Stormy Daniels or something, mm-hmm. right? And then, you know, you, you're talking about sort of the bottom, you know, exploited, maybe on the street, whatever. But, no, there's this whole middle class. And as someone who is not super familiar with camming, like I've seen ads for it, and mm-hmm. I've, I've never actually been on a campsite myself, I thought it was an interesting sort of entry point into that. So uh, I'm curious – what ultimately led to you getting into camming? Yeah, um, camming for me was something I had always wanted to try. Um, I didn't quite know that camming existed, but I always wanted to be a stripper. Like mm-hmm. uh, I thought it would be really fun. I like taking my clothes off. Um, I knew so I had some friends who stripped and um, you know who enjoyed it and enjoyed the freedom that it gave them. And so um, I actually discovered cam girls and. Um, I found a girl that I was really obsessed with. I thought she was super cool and I thought she really actually liked me, of course, cause I was giving her all my money. <laughs> um, and then, and I really did some research and I decided, Hey, I want to try this. And so I just kind of dove right in and, um, I'm someone that really throws myself into everything that I do. And so I took it on full time. This was my full time job. And I loved it. It was really fun. And, uh, yeah. It seems almost all-consuming because one of the lines early in the movie is one of the other characters says, I cammed 70 hours last week. And it's amazing to me that you can just be online interacting with these folks for that much real Mm -hmm. estate in a day, right? And so I'm curious about the other side in terms of the folks who would – tune in and watch you and tip you and stuff. Do you have like a, a general demographic profile of who these folks are? It's hard to say. I can say with confidence that was mostly men. Sure. Um, and mostly men probably over 30. Okay. Um, but I definitely had female viewers. I had viewers uh, all over the gender spectrum and also all over the age spectrum. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know what, I always compare camming to being like a bartender. That's how mm. I felt. I felt like it wasn't so much about me taking my clothes off as much as it was about me curating this community where guys could come after work and hang out. And, you know, I did have the set hours that I worked and these routines. And so people would get off work and they would come into my room and they would hang out with each other and they had inside jokes with each other <laughs> and they, they missed each other and they, you know, and I, there were times when I took off days because I was sick. Sure. And when I came back, they would be like, oh, hey, dude, what's up? I missed you so much. Like, cause they wouldn't talk when I wasn't yeah. online. And so it was really like building this community of friendships that was, that was super cool. And yeah, you know, a lot of my viewers would tune in just on weekends and a lot of them would tune in every night and it kind of would depend on, on who they wow. were. Yeah. Are, are the shows, uh, similar as they are in Cam? Like, there's one of them where she's just like eating a steak. Right. <laughs> like would, would people tune in and like watch you, I don't know, make dinner and totally hundred percent girls do <laughs> cooking shows all the time and it's not always like sexy cooking either. Right. Um, I think what's so cool about camming is that, and, and really even stripping or any form of sex work is it's less about the sex act than it is about forming a connection with another human. Sure. I mean, that's everything. Right. Exactly. Exactly. That's Especially any customer service yeah. job. Yeah. And <laughs> so, um, you know, when you have a cam girl that you like, and I've experienced this as a viewer as well, like, like, I want to watch her eat a steak or cook, make cookies or rant about how she embarrassed herself at Starbucks. Like, <laughs> I, I want to know her because she feels like my friend and she is my friend in, to some degree. And so, um, you know, a lot of girls are completely non-nude. Um, a lot of girls are fully nude. A lot of girls are somewhere in the middle. And, you know, wherever they fall on sex acts or not sex acts or whatever, they're, they're able online. What's so cool about being online is they're able to find an audience that wants to engage with whatever they're offering. Right. And, oh. and, and setting expectations too. I mean, Alice has sort of the rules that she 
you know, wants to follow in terms of the things that she will and will not do. So once you set those parameters and you set expectations properly, then you can manage your community effectively that way, right? Is that fair? Totally. Absolutely. Interesting. What were you going to say, Daniel? Oh, I was just, I was going to say, you know, just from kind of somebody who came into this project as a porn consumer right. first, I think that, that part of the draw of camming for a lot of people is it can also become, you know, uh, I think, and I think it's the way that a lot of cam girls kind of curate their shows in their space is it can become, you know, this, this access into like, you know, you're hanging out in a girl's bedroom and you don't get to do that a lot. And mm. I think that it's really, really important that camming is an avenue for people to have life experiences, uh, in a digital virtual space that they're unable to have on, you know, in, in their real life, be it, uh, specifically, you know, that, or, you know, as Isa kind of frequently talks about, you know, um, um, uh, you can speak better to it than I can, but people who have other kind of sexual kinks or proclivities who aren't able to uh, live them in their real lives. Right. To express those elsewhere. Right. Um, and I, when I, when I read interviews with sex workers and former sex workers, a lot of them will say that they are enacting, they almost serve as an ad hoc therapist for people. Mm-hmm. So in terms of one of the things in the movie that I was struck by was, you know, Alice is kind of on her own here. She's got her room set up and it's, you know, it's well appointed. It's, it's incredibly well designed, but then there's also like a house, you know, where she can go and then there's tech support. So she calls up, you know, this, this tech support number, it's 24 seven. What kind of structure is behind a typical campsite? And, you know, you mentioned it's a community, it's a virtual community. But is there like a physical space where you can go? Are there corporate offices? Uh, what kind of structure is there? So all cam workers are independent contractors. Right. So there's pretty much zero structure. There's okay. a website. There's tech support. And, you know, they'll kind of, you know, once a year, twice a year at some sex conventions, they'll put up a booth and, you know, you can work the booth and things like that. Um, but besides that, you know, cam girls are really on their own. Okay. Uh, we use Twitter a lot because it's the only social media platform that allows you to post pornography and ah. promote your nudity without, you know, putting stars over your nipples. What about Tumblr? Tumblr might as well, actually. Right. Yeah, that's true. But um, I found most of the cam community or porn community in general is based on Twitter. Mm. You know, so girls definitely form these communities with each other. We get in contact with each other. Um, there are houses where girls live together and work together. Um, but in America, at least, it's pretty independent. Okay. Um, in other countries, you know, there are more like studio run industries. And there are some in, in the States as well. Um, but at least the cam girl that Alice is and the cam girl that I was and the story that I'm telling here is, is about the girl who's kind of like the independent contractor. I got you. Yeah. One of the things, one of the most affecting moments in the movie to me is when she goes to the police and the police officer, you know, is asking her, so do you meet up with these people in real life? Um, you know, do you have sex with them? And he's like, well, that's too bad. And, and he's like hitting on her. She's looking to this person for help. Mm -hmm. And to me, that is, you know, that's an indictment of the way that we view sex workers um, in this country. It's, look, I'm looking to you for help, man. I'm not, I'm not looking to sleep with you right now. Is that moment in the film reflective of something that, that you've had experience in real life? Yes. Um, luckily, not with law enforcement. That's good. Uh, <laughs> fortunately. Um, but, you know, I absolutely know of sex workers who have had similar incidences with law enforcement, mm. um, which is absolutely unacceptable. It's deplorable. It's deplorable. It's disgusting. And people do assume, like, you're a sex worker. You know, They're almost, like, entitled to you, right? Like, they yeah. feel like they're entitled to you. You are less than human. Right. And he's there to help her. And instead, he's using his power to belittle her and threaten her and, and hit on her hit and on her and and he expects her to be okay with that yeah because of her job 
And I think, you know, the, the line that he asks her, what's the weirdest thing you've ever had to do is actually taken. It's a line that was asked to me several times by several different men in Hollywood while I was trying to sell this film. <laughs> and I'm there with my script and the director and studio executives. And we're saying, OK, here's the script. And the question that they choose to ask me as I'm sitting there in front of them as a writer as a professional in a professional setting, yeah. they're asking me, what's the weirdest thing you've ever had to do sexually? And then what I love too is the phrasing of had to do, which totally negates my agency in my right. own career. Yeah. Wow. And, and <laughs> it's not, the cop scene isn't just kind of, you know, a reflection of, you know, the utter lack of, not the utter, I mean, but, but the, 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 the frustrations that, that sex workers have, you know, trying to, you know, get structural help from from the government or or from law enforcement but you know it was also one of our other big inspirations for that conversation was uh, there was an article i don't know if you're familiar with swatting or if your listeners are familiar with mm. swatting but swatting is a form of cyber harassment where essentially um you call a swat team to somebody's house you say oh there's a bomb in this in this house oh there's a hostage situation here and the the cops will just send a swat team they'll break oh into God. the house with fully loaded yeah, guns and and but it's for nefarious purposes but it's for so you know i could just if i knew your address i could call the police and say yeah, there's a hostage situation across the street for me and the cops would break into your house um you know and and with the swat traumatize team. your family and and, and people have and died you know. pets have died you know um and it, it's absolutely horrible and there was this kid in canada who had figured out how to serially swap people so he would develop relationships with twitch with with female twitch users right um that's like the video game platform right? yeah yeah, yeah. Where you like stream yourself playing video games right. and and he would try to get these girls to send him nudes if they refused he would swap them oh, and so there was this one particular twitch user and there's a whole expose on this whole thing uh, i think it was in the new york times the new yorker and uh so there was this one twitch user who was swatted by this kid three times by the same police department the same police department fell for the same trick at the same address three times and and on the third time the girl's family i mean because you know their their property was damaged they were horribly traumatized yeah the third time the the girl's family goes you know what can we do to stop this and the cop the lead investigator said well if you don't want stuff like this to happen stay off the internet oh god and that so that was like that moment in the movie is like literally a direct quote from it's not just about the lack of support that sex workers have it's the lack of agency and, and, and the lack of kind of ability for police to deal with any sort of cyber crime, cyber harassment, cyber bullying, and that we simply like as a, as a society and as a culture, we haven't figured out how to deal with technology from, from any sort of a law enforcement or even a social enforcement right. standard. And it was something that, you know, we were really trying to talk about in this movie that yeah, we see the people. Off the internet in 2018. No, like, but can't. we see, we see people on the other side of, of the camera. We see them as also less than we see them in general. We see digital, right. you know, th that's not a real person. That's just this digital, uh, you know, simulation of a real person. And ultimately, that's what that's what Lola is, too. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's almost like uh, people view it as a simulacrum of humanity. Mm -hmm. yeah. And like if we can deepen our empathy here, which is the whole point of my show, that's the entire reason this show exists mm. is that's why I talk to so many people about what they do, because people are what they do in a lot of ways. Your job in especially in America kind of defines you. So to that end, if we can deepen our empathy and understand where people are coming from, we're doing good work. So to that end, you know, having worked in the sex industry, having now made this film, talked to media, you know, you mentioned you're at the end of a festival tour of what, three, four months? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a lot of time talking about this subject matter. Uh, I'm curious what your ideas are. How can we, uh, make sex work more, uh, you know, how can we deepen our empathy? How can we make it ideal? Like what's, what's the vision for, 
either increasing understanding of sex work or making it, it, it to a place where it's more culturally sort of uh, accepted? I don't know mm-hmm. exactly even how to phrase this question. I think the main thing is to listen. If you listen, sex workers are speaking. Porn stars are talking. Like We're out there and we're sharing our stories and we need to be listened to. Because when you listen to us, you'll hear that we're tired of being props in horror movies. We're tired of being, oh, look, we killed a hooker. Ha ha. Like, we're tired of (laughs) that. And to build empathy requires you to listen to the person you're trying to empathize with. And it requires standing up for those people to other people who might not have the same access to that information, you know? So if you hear your friend make a joke about a hooker or call someone a whore derogatorily or, you know talk about people in a disrespectful manner sometimes it's just our language that's so powerful right. and and calling your friends out is honestly one of the greatest ways to be an ally i agree with you i mean i i was thinking about i had a friend this was like five years ago and he was describing something that was you know lame as gay yeah and i go dude don't do that like and i and we we're just by a pool like we were on vacation together no one was watching but i'm like dude like from what I've heard from my gay friends, like, just don't do that. Mm-hmm. Because, I like, I know what you mean, and I know you don't have hate in your heart. And I know you're not a bad guy. But seriously, stop doing that. Like, erase that from your vocabulary. So I agree. That's very powerful. Yeah, we respect our friends. We want to be cool to our friends. We want to listen to our friends. So, you know, I've had friends call me out on things before in my language. And I'm sure. always appreciative of it. Because it's like sometimes you say things you're, you're not even realizing are harmful. Because right. it's just so ingrained in your vernacular. And then to have someone call you out on it and to really listen to that is so important and really cool, actually. Yeah. I mean, I think that, that at the same time, and again, I'm, I'm not the person to speak to this, but uh, Sesta and Fosta are, are very real things that I think that, that are important to address, which is, you know, we are, we are living in a moment right now where, in the United States in particular, where we are trying to criminalize sex work in, in a, in a, you know, in a way that exists only to threaten the safety and security of sex workers. So while I think building empathy and destigmatizing sex work are really, really important things and, and work that needs to be done, I think that there is uh, an equal amount of activist work that needs to be done in dismantling of legislation uh, right. that that targets uh, that targets sex workers and makes them unsafe, but also you know leading to you know eventually a decriminalization or a legalization of sex. And, work. The, and this goes back to listening to sex workers because when you look at SESTA and FOSTA, they were designed to protect. Can you, can you describe those yeah. for anyone who doesn't know? Yeah, like, there, there are two bills that were passed that under the auspices of being anti-sex trafficking bills, which is how a lot of yeah, anti-sex so they, work. Sh- they shut down a lot of online communities where sex workers would go to talk to each other, to vet clients, um, to post, to advertise, things like that. And they were geared to stop sex trafficking. Mm-hmm. But when you actually talk to sex traffic uh, sex trafficking organization, anti-sex trafficking organizations and the people actually working with sex trafficking victims, they say that these bills are damaging. But again, this is about, you know, like entitlement of people with privilege thinking that they know better than the people in the industries of how to protect people. And so, again, it's about listening. If you want to protect sex trafficking victims, listen to sex trafficking right. victims. And then if you want to, you know, help sex workers, listen to sex workers when they're telling you what they need to be safe and to and to feel, you know, protected. Well, and I think what you're getting at is in this culture, there's a deep vein of puritanicalism or whatever the correct mm-hmm. form of that word is. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's there's almost this desire to punish people who work in this sort of 
you know, in this milieu. And it's like, look, if you criminalize this, if you push these people to the margins, you just continue to make it much more unsafe. And so it's under the auspices. It's like, no, I'm trying to save you from yourself. And you go, that's not how it works here, guy. It's the oldest like, profession. I mean, and it's yeah. not a joke. And, and no. And it's, it's, I, so I think that, that and it, sex workers are saying we don't need saving. Right. We just need to be respected. Right. I mean, we don't need saving, but let's, let's get some common sense protections in here. You exactly. know, recognize us as employees. Like, let's, let's create an environment where someone can create a company where maybe we get employees and we can get them some benefits. Like, because people are going to do this whether it's legal or not. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and so I think that ultimately, you know, that's, that's why this comes down to, to being a labor rights issue, you know, at the end of right. the day. And, and most and, things are when you get down to yeah. <laughs> that said, we do have friends that are sex workers in countries where, you know, other forms of sex yeah. work, like uh, escorting, for example, are legal. Um, or at least decriminalized. Or, or prostitution in or Germany prosti- is, yeah. is, I think, just legal. And but, it, you know, they still struggle with it because of the social stigma. Like, the social stigma still sure. exists around it, where they are still seen as less than, they're still harassed, they're still belittled. And so, you know, it's this twofold approach where, on the one hand, we need the legislature, but on the other hand, we also need the empathy uh, in society as a whole. Right. We need deeper cultural empathy. Totally. I mean, that's true totally. of a lot of things. So I want to pivot slightly from this sort of large conversation about policy. Let's get back to yeah. uh, the movie here. Oh, yeah, the movie. <laughs> real quick. Um, but what, what was funny about watching this uh, is it triggered all these thoughts that I had because this is such an unconventional approach to this subject matter. Uh, you know, to some people from the outside looking in, was it difficult to sell this movie based on the subject matter? Yes. Yeah? Yes. No. Well, I'm going to disagree. I think it was really easy to sell the that movie. That was great. Based on yes. The, no. It was really easy to sell the movie based on the subject matter. It was really hard to sell the right movie based off the yes, subject that's matter. It. Oh, okay. And I think that that's a critical distinction. Totally. Thank you for saying that. That was totally <laughs> nailed it. Everyone wanted to make the fun cam girl movie. Mm. No one wanted to make the politically correct, ethical cam girl movie where we're not ah. objectifying her. You know, we had people joke about, like, oh, I can't wait for the movie poster with an actress with big boobs on the poster. You know, in your face. Nobody wanted her to go back to sex work at the end of the movie. Right. They wanted the morality story. Ah, yes. The uh, the the typical arc, like, oh, I so I did this. I saw the error of my ways, and now I'm going to beauty school or whatever. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and, and and so I think that that. That was something that we did very early on. This is our first film. We were unrepresented getting it sold. We're still unrepresented as, as, as filmmakers. And, and, you know, so we, we had the script that we really cared about. And, but we also, you know, really knew that we, we needed help on it. And, and, you know, we are really, really believe in active collaboration with everybody on the team. I think that, you know, down to financiers, people try to have antagonistic relationships with the money on their movies. I think that's <laughs> foolish. Um, and, and, and so, you know, but what we did is we, we wrote up a manifest of kind of like these are our our won'ts these are the places where we walk away from the movie if we don't get these things right and and we're not going to deviate from that and everything else is on the table everything else we will compromise on we will negotiate on but but and and that made it really really easy to be extremely you know just selecting of like these are the good people these are the bad people to work with on this project because they either got it or they didn't yeah who fucking gets it right you know exactly and so when we self-selecting group when we got to Blumhouse you know Bea Sakara there read the script she was sent the script from a friend of a friend of a friend and read the script and immediately i think you know they had just kind of seen the first cut of get out and were really excited about making another social thriller uh in that milieu and she had the experience to kind of understand you know how to support 
creators coming from a, a, a politically sensitive place and and um, and they didn't produce the movie ultimately they developed the script with us and then sure. connected us with with the money and with uh, with divide and conquer the production company that actually made the film but I think that 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 that's really I think something that as a word of advice to any other people who are interested in making the first film you know I think that come up with the things that you really really care about and have that be a finite list have that be a short list right um, and then be willing to work with people outside of that and and find people who who care about the things you care about and and then find places to to compromise and to collaborate well and especially on your first feature it's like look we're gonna do this thing right mm -hmm. if it doesn't happen right if people go this is not the film like you're right where you were before right <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> so i mean you you're really in a place where there's nothing to lose so let's make it right mm. on our first go right mm -hmm. so i also am a writer so I do quite a bit of writing and I was reading part of your processes. You would binge on writing for like days, right? Mm -hmm. you, you just go hard for what, like three days. Mm -hmm. I was curious about your writing process and how this script came to unfold. Yeah. I mean, we collaborated on the story from day one. Yeah. So it's, uh, we were have these hour long discussions um, about camming, about digital identity, about specific plot ideas that we had. And then, you know, uh, Daniel wasn't living in Boulder at the time, so uh, he would leave. He'd be in town. We'd have these long, long discussions. He'd leave. I'd, you know, binge watch Downton Abbey for two weeks, <laughs> and then and then I would sit down and write. Yeah. And I would, um, you know, I do work in these binges of like eighteen-hour days where I just like write continuously. Wow. And then I would have you know a script done, and I would send it to him, and he would give me notes, and we would talk about it, and we'd fight over lines, and he'd rewrite some lines, and then I'd rewrite them again, and um, and then we just kind of took it from there. So yeah. it was really collaborative from from the beginning. Were you there during the shoot too? I was. I was. On, I was there for everything. I mean, when we say it's a film that we co-created, it really is. I you lived for, and breathed it. I lived and breathed it. I was in casting. I was in pre-production. I was on wow. set. Um, it, it was really both of our visions from the beginning. Yeah. The way that we kind of talk about that and think about it, that, that again is a, a bit of a, a just a, a different way of thinking of, of, of how to make a movie is that, you know, uh, we each had our craft on the film. I was mm -hmm. the director of the movie and Issa was the writer of the movie, the same way that we had a director of photography on the movie or an editor on the movie. These are just jobs on the movie. Yeah. Um, but, but when it comes to the vision of the film, the authorship, the what is this movie going to be, that was something that was completely shared between the two of us and nice. and i think that that we we live in a, a a film culture right now where we think of a movie as being a monologue from a single person and it's the director mm. and and i think that you know when you think about hey i want to kind of make an experimental film i want to i want to experiment with 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 cinema you know people don't really question the process behind it they don't question the fundamental authorship behind it but i think that what we were really excited about with cam is that it's a movie that's a dialogue not a monologue and mm -hmm. and it's a dialogue between the two of us and i think that that's really special and something that we're really excited to continue doing and something that i really hope that other filmmakers especially filmmakers who you know i'm not a cam girl i'm not a woman this is a movie about sex work it's about female sexuality it's also about digital identity which i have a lot of thoughts on and personal experience on Certainly. but it's about a things a bunch of stuff i don't have that experience on and i was interested in going into that world and i think that that you know what i would recommend for other filmmakers and yeah this is kind of a like thing directed to you know white men who right. who you know where we're in this moment where these are questioning who's allowed to tell what kind of story i think everybody whether you're a man or a woman or you know no matter what your your you know 
identification is should be able to tell a story about anything. But I think that, you know, there are still kind of ethical considerations about how to do that, how to represent a subject properly, how to engage with that in the filmmaking process. And if you look at that and you say, hey, maybe this movie doesn't need to be a monologue. Maybe it should be a dialogue. How can I how can I build a film process around that? Because it's such a plastic medium uh, and it is a medium that's all about collaboration. And I think that I really hope that we start thinking about it in a more holistic capacity. I and I'm inclined to agree with you. Uh, I think that's fascinating insight because Roger Ebert very famously said, it doesn't matter what a movie's about, but how it's about it. Yeah. And so this movie is about camming, but the way it's about it to me is really interesting. Uh, I, I think about something that I also watched recently, the second season of American Vandal, which uh, is a show on Netflix that I really, really liked. And, you know, it's about uh, shit-based pranks, essentially, right? But the way that it's about it, is remarkable, and it speaks to exactly what you were getting at, Daniel, which is we are in a moment here where there's a lot of questions about digital identity. You know, I, I don't want to give away too much for anyone who hasn't seen that, but the, the threads that the movie ties together are sort of related to what's happening in KM. You know, with who are we online versus who are we in real life? How do those intersect? And what happens when something goes awry online, what do we do about it? And, and how does that define who we are and where do we go forward? So I just, I think it's fantastic. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> so um, I, I realized there was no question at the end of that, <laughs> but uh, just, just sort of me uh, espousing an opinion there. A couple of other things I wanted to bring up with regard to this movie was, um, one, the reception seems to be really, really good. Is the reaction from people what you hoped for? So far, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's been great. People really like the movie. Sex workers so far really like the movie. That's got to be a nice um, endorsement. It's been an incredible endorsement. A, a few women have come up to me after screenings. A couple of them were crying, um, wow. saying that they felt seen and respected by this film in a way that they hadn't in the media. Yeah. And I can relate to that a lot as someone who didn't feel seen or respected by the media and, and so that's been really moving. Sure. Um, that said, you know, we've been showing it to self-selecting audiences. We've oh, been at sure, film yeah. festivals, you know. So the, we'll the see. Drudge Report tweeted about us yesterday, which okay. is very exciting. Yeah, we're very happy. They're not happy about the movie. <laughs> and I, like I, I, it's like, it kind of feels like, oh, you know, you've made it when like the Drudge Report is pissed off. <laughs> you know, like, like it's, 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 so I think that, that, the next leg of this is going to be really exciting because, you know, yeah, it's been film festival audiences. There's a, that's a specific kind of audience, yeah. generally speaking. But I think that, you know, there's a, there's a bigger and honestly, potentially more antagonistic conversation coming. And I think that yeah. it's a conversation that we're on some level, you know, it's scary to have, but that on another level, it's critical to have. And that I, I hope that we're able to, to represent some of these ideas in it because it's, it's one of the extraordinary things of having Netflix as a platform for this movie, for this story and for the representation of, of, of all of it is because, you know, you do, you are kind of suddenly beamed into the homes of 130 million people across the globe. Yeah, that's wild. And, and the yeah, opera in other countries are gonna you, see like, this film, you know. <laughs> like that's the thing is like we've been in like liberal, you know, America, <laughs> right? In and film Canada, festival land, Europe, you know. But but like yeah, like what is somebody in Bangladesh gonna think about this movie? I have no idea. Yeah. Will it know? play in Peoria? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like when you start thinking about Netflix, you start thinking about it in totally different ways, and 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 I think that that's how the company thinks, and it it is something that's really interesting that it's the first time that we've ever seen something 
that is a uh, an on-demand monoculture that is global. Mm. And that's new. And that's so exciting to be a part of, especially with a movie who which has themes that are so universal and applicable. Right. And, I mean, the subject matter is going to draw some people in who probably aren't going to be expecting uh, what or, or aren't going to get what they're expecting. Right? I hope so. There was a man actually at a screening two days ago who I, I stood up to introduce the film and I said, as a former sex worker, and he snickered. <laughs> he was like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, and I was like, oh, I am so glad that you're here and that you're going to see this movie because you are the exact. I don't want to play this film in an echo chamber. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're the exact person <laughs> I want to see this film. But we even get people who you know are are I think very open to the ideas saying. This is not the film we expected when we heard that it was a Blumhouse cam girl movie. Mm. And, and I think that that's also really exciting because I think that, that it sends the message to people that, that horror about sex does not need to be sex negative. Mm. And I think that, that when we look at kind of the development in horror over the past five years, which has been really exciting. And I kind of think since it follows, I, it's a movie that I kind of pimp on. Oh, yeah. like the, the moment where, Everybody started going, wait, this movie played can. This is interesting, and, and this is aesthetically experimental, and this is pushing. Um, is, is I think that still, you know, we haven't really delved into exploring sexuality in that new horror space, and I think that, that that's something else that we hope that this movie can kind of stand for. A, a, a horror movie about sex work does not have to be sex negative. And I'd never thought about it in exactly those terms, but it almost universally is. Even if you go back to something like Scream, right? It's exactly, yeah. It's the right? joke of Scream, you yeah, know? You, yeah. you, if you, you have you, sex, you die. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the virgin ends up saved, right? Yeah. And, it, and it sort of goes back to this country was born out of Puritanism. And it's like, Wes Craven, so it's very – he's, he's making fun of yeah, the no, sex he's, negativity, you know. But I, I think that, that, that there are just so few examples of a movie that, that, that doesn't – Right. Well, I mean, to that point, it is a it is an effective parody of horror movies, mm. but it also follows those same tropes. Exactly, and I and I think you that's know? dangerous. And I think what's so great about the reception of the film is that you know when we were pitching this to financiers, so often they would want that morality story. They would be like, okay, well, she has to learn that porn is bad in <laughs> right. order for this movie to be commercial. Yeah. And we're proving that it doesn't have to be because we got sold to Netflix, and you know. Are the reviews have all been really positive and people love the movie and so I hope that we're showing those same financiers and everyone else in Hollywood that like it's time to shake things up and it's time to make different movies well I mean you brought up Get Out right mm -hmm. which comes from exactly. Blumhouse yeah. or a movie like Crazy Rich Asi Asians mm -hmm. yeah. that recently came out like there's markets out there who are dying to have representation. Oh, totally. There, there are people out there who are like, God, I wish someone would tell this story correctly. And it's something else that's really important to talk about in terms of, I think, one of the other things that Netflix brings to the table, which is a lower barrier to entry to access. Mm. You know, and it's something that Ava DuVernay talks about. You know, she wanted to do a Wrinkle in Time premiere in, in Compton, uh, you know, and and there wasn't a movie theater there. Oh, my. And, and, you know, so when we're thinking about representation in that way, you know, there is something Thing that's very exciting about Netflix, which is that anybody can afford it, really, you know, right. and 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 so there isn't that kind of thing of like if you're going to go to a movie, you got to drive 25 minutes out of your neighborhood and and into right. an unfamiliar unfamiliar space, and and so I think that that that's something else about the platform that that is really exciting and and it's cool for a film with these kinds of political ideas to be a part of. Yeah, no, I I'm inclined to agree with you. All right, so you're at the tail end of a festival season. How many more you got? One, one more. One more. One more. Where's that one? AFI LA. Fest. Oh wow, we should not talk on top of each other. I love it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> AFI, AFI Fest. 
Okay, ready. Three, two, one. A- AFI, AFI Fest, Fest. Okay. in LA. In LA. Right. Uh, and then we have our thea- we have a small theatrical run in New York, in Brooklyn and Yonkers, and in San Antonio, Texas, and Austin, Texas, and Denver huh. uh, through the Alamo Draft House. So oh, cool. it's, right. um, Denver's is different from everywhere else. It's November thirtieth. Uh, there will be a one-week run at the Alamo Draft House in uh, Sloan's Lake, nice. and um, and and then Netflix is uh, November sixteenth. Wow! Um, but we'll be we'll be in New York for for the sixteenth and uh, Denver for the thirtieth for those premieres, and then. Nice. Uh, and then and we're gonna sleep for a very long time. Yeah. Well, then we have to go make another movie uh, right now. Oh but yeah. What's next? What are you guys doing? I, I mean, I know you probably can't talk about it. It's but... a it's a Blum movie. Okay. And Blumhouse doesn't want us to say anything more than it's a Blum movie. Nice. Um, but it's. I think we can say it's a female lead. All right. I want to say that. Kind of. Kind of a female but lead. It's yeah, kind of a female kind of, lead. Yeah, mm. All right. Well, you're very cagey with it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's. I, yeah. I and I can appreciate that, but I mean, you say it's a Blum movie. I, a lot of cachet around that right now, right? It's we love Blumhouse. Yeah. That's cool. We're just they trust their creators so much, and we love that. And were they jazzed with the product that that you obviously created for them? So they're like, hey, what else you got? I mean, yeah. So their their whole deal was that you know they helped develop the script, they helped um, creatively uh, package the story, but at the end of the day, they didn't produce it. Yeah. And so it was produced by Divide and Conquer, and you know Blumhouse had the option at the end of it to buy it back, and they did because they liked it. Nice. <laughs> and they bought it up, uh, bought it back, and sold it to Netflix. And so yeah, they were they they're very excited about it. And and I think that what Jason has done, you know, there's a legacy in Hollywood. Uh, I think the last person to do something similar is Roger Corman. Mm. And, you know, you look at who came out of the Roger Corman school of filmmaking, it's Francis Ford Coppola, Martin Scorsese, James Cameron, Jonathan Demme, uh, uh, so many men. you know, um, <laughs> Peter Bogdanovich, you know, it's, 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 but it's a really, yes, that's the seventies in film. Yeah. And, and it was because Corman was basically like, your movie has to have these four things in it. You know, there has to be a murder or sex, you know, a sex scene every 15 minutes. And, and he had a model and he never lost money on a movie, literally not once. And, you know, Jason's really similar. Jason has figured out a model in which he is able to experiment and to empower creatives, uh, to experiment. And, and he, he, he doesn't lose money and there are structures and things that you, you have to kind of fit into to, to sure. fit his model but as long as you're doing those things he let you to do whatever you like want the rest is up to it. you the rest yeah. is up to you and that's such an exciting place to be in and i think that especially when you're thinking about you know kind of mid-budget range features right now there are very few other people who who are empowering creatives to to, to work in that space especially when it's politically incendiary material you know nobody right. else would have made get out and 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 that was a movie that you know that 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 Jason basically forced Universal to do because he was like, "This is going to be huge. This is going to be massive." You know, and and so I think that that we're very very lucky to be a part of that family. That's incredible. All right, well, here's the time where we plug. Uh, feel free to plug screenings. I don't know that this will be up in time for any of the Denver Film Fest screenings, but where can people find more about you? Where can they find the film? Feel free to plug the Netflix premiere again. Whatever you want to do, do it now. You can uh, follow my very bad social media at Chrono Pictures, C-H-R-O-N-O Pictures, both Twitter and Instagram. And Issa's is much better. You should follow. And I, I, I'm in it a lot, but... Uh... If you want to see really embarrassing videos of Danny, follow me. I'm at Issa is wrong. Um, I also spam a lot about the movie. We're on Netflix uh, November 16th. Should we do that one in unison too? What? November 16th in unison. No, oh God! 
Draft House. Come out for the, dra- the Draft House, especially in Denver. We'd love to see people out there on oh. the 30th. Yeah. November 30th. November 16th on Netflix, November 30th at the uh, Denver Draft House. That's awesome. Well, I'll tell you what, Daniel, Issa, this was an enormous pleasure. I thought the film was terrific. I wish you guys nothing but continued success. Thank you so much. Thanks. Great to be here. And that wraps up episode 197 of the John of All Trades podcast with Issa Mutze and Daniel Goldhaber, the writer and the director of Cam. Check out the John of All Trades companion blog piece to find out where you can see Cam. Drops on Netflix November 16th. That's probably the easiest way. But the John of All Trades blog is jonofalltrades.us. The show is a production of Deft Communications. Check out Deft on the web, D-E-F-T. C-O-M.us. We are a communications consulting firm specializing in training, content, engagement, and podcasting. Hit us up if you have any of those needs. D-E-F-T-C-O-M.us. Our sponsor is 4Degrees, the number 4, D-E-G-R-E.es. If you're doing work online, building a website, reaching out through social media, or doing online advertising, 4Degrees is the firm that you need to get with because they will not only get your message dialed in, but get it in front of the people who need to see it the most. Number four, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. I'm back here next week with brand new episodes. Continuing from the Denver Film Festival, DFF41. Hit that subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. Brand new episodes will come right to you. You don't even have to do any work. As a thank you, maybe leave me a rating. Maybe leave me a review. I'd appreciate that very much. That helps us gain exposure. How? I'm not really sure, but thank you anyway. Check out the Denver Podcast Network. That's denverpodcast.net. We've got a ton of great shows covering any number of topics from all around Denver. It's the best podcast network out there. So until I hear you back here again next week, say goodnight, Gracie. That's good, Johnny. The John of All Trades podcast is a part of the Denver Podcast Network. In the shadow of the mountains, we speak. speak.